Greetings, one and all, and thanks for downloading this latest episode of the China History Podcast. Today is the third installment in our overview of the Qing Dynasty, the last dynasty of imperial Chinese history, going back to 221 BC and Qin Shi Huang. Last week, we looked at the reign of the Yongzheng Emperor. And before that, we looked at the reign of his father, the Kangxi Emperor. Today, we look at the Grand Champion of Champions, longest reigning emperor in China's 213 decades of imperial history, the Qianlong Emperor. He officially reigned from 1735 until 1796. Now, he lived on another three years beyond 1796, but to show his filial piety towards his esteemed grandfather, the Kangxi Emperor, he retired rather than reign longer than the 61 years of the Kangxi period. So, all told, he actually ruled for 64 years. Louis XIV reigned for 72 years, so he's the real champ. Actually, the uh, king of Thailand just passed the Qianlong Emperor by recently, as far as uh, longest reigning monarchs go. May he pass Louis XIV as well. Uh, the Qianlong Emperor, okay, let's just get comfortable, get ready for some history about all the goings-on during his time. The Qing Dynasty, when the Qianlong era begins, is now already 90 years old. They made some modifications, but the government and political institutions during the Qing were pretty much the same as what they inherited from the Ming. Of course, there were many changes on the surface to account for Manchu sensibilities, but the day-to-day functions of the government were handled the same as during the Ming. As we'll see, the dynasty hits the top of its trajectory in the 1760s, 1770s, and then we'll see during the latter part of Qianlong's reign in the 1780s and 90s, there's terrible decay from within, and foreign powers begin to exert all kinds of new stresses on the imperial court. His personal name was Hongli, and his temple name was Gaozong. He is known in all the history books as the Emperor Qianlong, If you recall in the last episode, his father, the Yongzheng Emperor, took every precaution to ensure a smooth succession. So when the fourth son of Yongzheng came to the throne, there were no competitors to confuse or mess up the transition. He became emperor when he was 24 years old. When he came to the throne in 1735, his father had left him a very solid and well-oiled, effective machine of state, and, and the treasury was filled to the brim. The Qianlong Emperor inherited his father's two loyal ministers who helped him get off to a good start. One was Manchu, Er Tai, and the other Han Chinese, Zhang Tingyu. Zhang, in fact, had served not only the Yongzheng Emperor, but Kangxi as well, so he served three emperors faithfully and loyally. But factions had grown around each of the two powerful ministers, and you had a Manchu-Chinese all-out behind-the-scenes competition going on. But, as we'll see, the Qianlong Emperor was a big-time supporter of his Manchus, especially since he saw so many of the Manchu sensibilities and virtues so fast disappearing. The Qianlong Emperor not only came to symbolize the best of the Qing dynasty, he also had to take the heat for failing to deal with all the social problems that plagued China and for failing to deal properly with the intrusion of the West into China's perfect little world. When one ponders the weakness that China exhibited before the Western powers and the unforgivable humiliations that followed the Opium Wars and the Age of Imperialism, it all began right here, folks, with this emperor. So let's start at the beginning. 
Qianlong was the favorite amongst his grandfather Kang Shi's 100 grandchildren. Kang Shi died when the future emperor was 11 years old. His father, the Yongzheng Emperor, recognized something special in this boy. He was given a classical education and was fluent in Mandarin, Manchu, Mongol, Uyghur, and Tibetan. He was very close to his birth mother, the Empress Dowager Xiaosheng. The Qianlong Emperor remained intensely devoted to his mother all the way up until she died at the age of 85. It must have been his mother who passed on those strong genes for longevity as the emperor lived to the ripe old age of 87. But like such characters from Chinese history, like Chairman Mao or the Xuanzong Emperor of the Tang Dynasty, he was a great man who did great things but lived too long, and some of his luster and shine was greatly diminished on the back end of his reign. We'll get into that later. So the Qianlong Emperor was extremely devoted to his mother and throughout his life went to all kinds of lengths to honor her, make her comfortable and amused. He visited her every three days and had a meal with her every five days. He would honor her at feasts and celebrations like any filial son would and spent lavishly on her. Like his grandfather, the Qianlong Emperor loved to take all these grand tours of the realm, and whenever his mother was physically up to it, he took her too. And strangely, even though his mother, the Empress Dowager, was so close to her son and so influential, she never got involved in court politics, and there are no stories of her being the, the scheming royal that past and future Empress Dowagers often were. He married one of his consorts, and they had a loving marriage, but she died young in her 30s in 1748, and the Qianlong Emperor never again had such a close partner in marriage. It's said he loved poetry, collecting art, building, and enjoying gardens and palaces more than he did wine, women, and song. The Qianlong Emperor was a very prolific poet himself, producing, it's said, over 40,000 poems. But alas, in Mandarin, we say, Bai Xing Bu Ru Yi Yue. A hundred stars aren't the same as a single moon. So let's just say the Qianlong Emperor had acquired a reputation as sort of the uh, Ed Wood, so to speak, of 18th century Chinese poets. He didn't command a lot of respect from scholars, although back then I'm sure they told him he was Li Bai reincarnated. Not a lot of praise has been handed down from scholars about the quality of the poetry produced by this Qing Emperor. He was addicted to art collecting to a high degree. His avarice for new pieces of art was well known throughout his lifetime. Nobles and other rich private collectors lived in continual fear that he might hear about some work or other that they owned and then use his position as emperor to force them to hand it over as a gift or a donation or whatever. The emperor was famous for doing this. The size of the imperial art collection during Qianlong's time is, is legendary. When you walk through the National Palace Museum in Taipei or the, or the Gukong in Beijing, some of the greatest works you'll see, we have the Qianlong Emperor to thank. He did a great job building the collections and accumulating such a massive amount of art. But he did one thing uh, that later connoisseurs, uh, aficionados, and art historians just rolled their eyes in disgust at. It was very common back in the day for the owner of a piece of art to perhaps write some kind of comment or perhaps a poem where he might immortalize the painting with his calligraphy. The core or the backbone of the great paintings that make up the collections in Taipei and Beijing 
we have the Qianlong Emperor to thank, and they're all immortalized with the Emperor's calligraphy. Right there, on the painting, he would get his two cents in about what was on his mind when he viewed the painting. Now, art connoisseurs didn't call this act immortalizing the painting as much as they considered it defacing the painting by, a, by an emperor with a Donald Trump-sized ego. So, on the one hand, whereas a guy like me looks at the painting and says, oh, wow, the, you know, the actual calligraphy of the Qianlong emperor himself, well, someone with more taste and expertise might remark, man, how can anyone, let alone an emperor, deface such a masterwork of painting? The famous Jesuit Italian painter, Giuseppe Castiglione, known in China as Langshir Ning, was alive and painting during this Qianlong period. He was a Western painter who blended both Chinese and Western methods and themes and was a favorite of the Qianlong Emperor and painted the Emperor often. Let's just say the Qianlong Emperor never passed up a chance to immortalize himself. So, let's get into the main course here. The life and reign of the Qianlong Emperor, as I said, brought the Qing to its height. From Tibet in the southwest, Xinjiang in the north, and all the way to Manchuria, Taiwan, and of course the traditional heartlands of China going back to the beginning, all was one single unified empire. With the exception of Mongolia, when you Look at a map of mid-18th century China. It's pretty much indistinguishable from the map of the People's Republic of China that you could buy anywhere in any bookshop today. The greatest territorial extent of the empire happened on the Qianlong Emperor's watch. So he's credited with this, and he loved to bask in the particular glory shown on him by this achievement. Let's talk about the extravagant side of the Qianlong Emperor. As I mentioned, this guy had one heck of an ego and a craving for applause, attention, and anything that could be pigeonholed into the shoe-shining category. So you can imagine how much he embraced the whole notion of following in his grandfather's footsteps and taking these six grand tours of the country. And like I said, he took his mom along whenever she was up to it, and together they traveled to all the legendary southern cities. Nanjing, Hangzhou, Suzhou, and unlike his less ostentatious grandfather's more economically friendly sojourns, it was always, without exception, first class all the way. Wherever they went, no expense was spared to build gardens and palaces, temples and pavilions overlooking scenic spots everywhere to accommodate the emperor and his imperial entourage. If you recall from the uh, June 29th show last year on The Great Leap Forward, when Mao used to make his grand tours, they did the same thing for him too, but of course not on the scale or extravagance of the Qianlong Emperor. Roads were specially paved, and heroic efforts were made by workmen and artisans to build pathways and steps into the mountains so that the litters bearing the emperor and his mother could be traversed safely and they could enjoy the vistas from such spectacular heights. And the cost of these grand tours came from the treasury, but was also supplemented by local nobles and other rich Han Chinese who had done well in the booming Qing economy. They had to cough up extraordinary amounts, too, if the imperial whirlpool got too close to their worlds. And they had better hide their paintings, too. You had to take every precaution around this emperor. One of my favorite little customs had its roots in these grand tours. Sometimes to get a true feel for the pulse of the people, the emperor would go somewhere incognito and pose as some kind of noble with retainers. 
Once, when he was down in the south of China, he had stopped at a tea house or inn with his guards and was taking in the scene when suddenly the emperor himself takes the teapot in his own hands and pours tea for one of the guards. This was an honor that someone in this guard's position might tell their grandchildren about, and their grandchildren would tell the story for a hundred generations. Now, if this guard who had just had his teacup refilled did the right thing, he would have been down on the ground, banging his forehead to the floor repeatedly in a way that, you know, you might do before the emperor. But to do this would give the emperor's identity away. And with a celebrity like this, you know, the Qianlong emperor, you had to be careful. So, you know, there could be assassins or just an unruly mob or who knows. He couldn't give the emperor's identity away. So rather than kowtowing, the guard instead cleverly used his index and middle fingers to represent his legs and on the surface of the table used them to represent the act of kneeling down and bowing to the emperor for such a kind act. And to this day, folks, when you're enjoying an afternoon meal at any of the finest or grungiest dim sum palaces in Hong Kong, Guangzhou, or any Chinatown across this great big world of ours, you'll see this southern Chinese custom of tapping your fingers on the table as a symbolic thank you whenever someone fills your teacup. He was one of the greatest builders of all time in Chinese history. In addition to all the forced construction, wherever he might make his travels, he gave the imperial capital a total makeover. He greatly increased the size of the Forbidden City and redesigned the summer palaces in the western suburbs and in Zhihe up in Manchuria. No skimping was allowed on any of his projects. He got personally involved and made sure only the best materials were used and the most reputable artisans and workmen uh, performed the work. And he had very good taste when it came to these things and spared no expense. All this incredible building and beautification pretty much got done during the first 30 years of the Qianlong period. Thanks to his father, the Yongzheng Emperor, there was quite a lot of treasure to spend, and this common theme throughout history of the father who makes all the money and the son who spends it all certainly rang true in this case. The emperor took an incredible amount of heat from his court, questioning the necessity to build all these monuments to his vanity. Well, they didn't exactly put it this way, but despite all the protestations, the emperor took his lumps and just kept on building. I mean, he countered to all this criticism that all his building projects gave work to the people and was one form of redistributing wealth. It sure redistributed wealth, that's for sure. When you look at the scale of the building and all the government contracts involved and whatnot, you can't even begin to imagine the usual skimming going on. Unbelievable waste on magnitudes hard to imagine. It was like the famous uh, $300 toilet seats and $900 hammers. It was just terrible government waste going on, and everyone was in on it, and everyone got their cut. And not only that, it was fashionable to mimic the emperor. You know, amongst the social elites themselves, Qianlong's lifestyle also encouraged a, a kind of waste and ostentation among the whole upper strata of society. And as we'll see later on in the reign, when Qianlong's military campaigns made these fiscal demands on the treasury, it had been depleted to the extent that he didn't have the silver bars to throw around like he once did, and China suffered for it. Qianlong, more than anyone since the Old Boy Regency, was particularly hardcore about the idea of Manchus being in charge. This, of course, was always a 
thorny subject because they needed the Chinese to help rule China and because they were so completely outnumbered. They, they had to keep the Chinese on their good side. But the Manchus were the conquerors, and it was a belief that ran hot and cold about always making a concerted effort to show who was in charge. During the time of Qianlong, all kinds of measures were taken to put the Hans in their place. The upper strata of government had dual layers of officials. You had the Chinese guy who basically did all the work and was the brains, and the Manchu guy who was the one in charge. I mean, I exaggerate it, but it went something like that. The Qianlong emperor was very strict during his reign regarding this point and making sure that this Manchu dynasty was ruled by Manchus. By the time of Qianlong especially during the latter part of his reign, the Manchus had given up a good deal of their enthusiasm to cling to all their Manchu ways. By the end of Qianlong's reign, Manchu isn't even being used at the imperial court anymore. So, just as it had lured their Jurchen ancestors of the Jing dynasty from 1115 to 1234, so did the uh, Qing-Manchu people succumb to the intoxicating pleasures and enticements of Chinese ways and culture. His style of governing was in no way the micromanaging, hands-on, day-to-day type like his father. On the other hand, he wasn't like the Kangxi emperor either, who sort of let the bureaucrats run things for him. The Qianlong emperor was a stern ruler who could often be persuaded to be lenient or to bend on his decision-making. And when it came to corruption... You know, the one thing that really drove the Yongzheng emperor crazy. For Qianlong, eh, he often looked the other way. A lot of his decisions and what really made this emperor go overboard was anything whatsoever that could possibly make him look bad or that he felt was an affront against his imperial majesty. His big ego and obsession with his self-image really drove him to act the way he did as a ruler. When you get right down to it, the Qianlong Emperor wasn't a leader who deserved accolades for his wisdom and innovation or adaptability as a ruler. If he knew one thing, it was how to use his majesty and all the grandeur of his office to get what he wanted. But what we'll see later on during the second half or the last third of his reign, when it seemed it might never end, and no one could remember a time when he wasn't the emperor, his retainers and all those officials closest to him played to his vanity, and the emperor was easily manipulated into acting or deciding in certain ways. Qianlong is given credit for the sponsorship of the Si Ku Quan Shu, or the Complete Library of the Four Treasures, or simply called the Four Treasures. This was another one of those massive works, like the Yongle Encyclopedia or the Gu Jin Tu Shu Ji Chang. This encyclopedic work consisted of a collection of everything there was to know about the Four Treasures of Shi, Zi, Ji, and Jing, or histories, philosophy, literary works, and classics. The first manuscript was given to the Qianlong Emperor in 1782. It was a compilation of 3,470 works, with 79,932 chapters, 360 million words, filling 36,000 large folio volumes. There were a total of seven manuscripts made that employed scholars for years. Four of the seven were kept in the Imperial Palace, for exclusive use by the palace officials, literati, and the emperor, of course. Of those four, three were destroyed, and only the emperor's original copy remains. 
The other three copies were kept in Yangzhou, Zhenjiang, the vinegar capital of China, and one in Hangzhou. Those three were also destroyed. Only a single copy made it through the pockets of chaos and destruction from 1782 to the present day. You could even get a view of this great work online. The verdict is mixed on this Si Ku Quan Shu. On the one hand, of course, it's considered a great collection of knowledge and culture all in one single source. Many of the works included might otherwise have been lost. It's very well the largest collection of literary works in a single scholarly enterprise ever undertaken at any time in history prior to the rise of the Internet. But one thing I didn't mention yet was that the Qianlong Emperor sort of initiated this literary inquisition. The scholars employed by the palace took liberties with the translations and did some very heavy editing. Government censors perused everything, looking for anything that was disparaging to the emperor in any way and to the Manchu people. So, on the one hand, we're all happy to have the four treasures. I think for any scholar or lover of Chinese culture, uh, I think all are thankful for having it. But let's just say the authorship and the content is always suspect. There were five things that were sort of taboo during the... Qianlong era. First and foremost was anything smelling of pro-Ming sentiment or showing the Qing in a negative light compared to the Ming dynasty. The second thing that was downright frowned upon in a big way was talk of restoring the Ming, and there was always this kind of talk going on. So, so repressive were the measures taken to stamp out any hint of a call to restore the Ming that it led to a lot of underground resentment and later spawned various secret societies. Also, right out was anything that was disparaging of not only Manchus in any shape or form, but also against their Mongol cousins. And these times being what they were, times of loose morals, if there ever was one, any kind of literary porn was aggressively stamped out. The last thing that kept the censors busy and gainfully employed were writings on military strategy or military science. So Qianlong, as great as he was, he had a little thing about freedom of the press. Let's look at another signature achievement credited to the Qianlong Emperor. This was known as the Ten Victorious Campaigns, or the Shichuan Wugong. Qianlong wasn't the kind of emperor to lead his troops into battle, but once in a while he would take them almost to the edge of the battlefield and see them off. Now, to a certain extent, these campaigns were fueled in part by the Qianlong Emperor's craving for military glory. Of the ten campaigns, two were to pacify rebellions by the Jingchuan people, who were uh, Tibetan tribal people from around western Sichuan. These were early on in 1747-1749, and again in 1771-1776, and, and it cost a fortune to put these rebellions down. Two of the campaigns were against the Dzungars in northwest Xinjiang from 1755 to 1757. These were the most important of the ten campaigns by a mile. These victories in Xinjiang brought the whole of Chinese Turkestan into China proper. So now the Manchus controlled the north from the east in Manchuria across Mongolia, and now Xinjiang was pacified and brought into the fold without the competition from the now-defeated Tsungars. And this, many say, is Qianlong's greatest and longest-lasting achievement. For bringing Tibet and Xinjiang into China proper and securing the extent of the territory that we know today as China. 
The other six victorious campaigns were against Turkic Muslims of southern Xinjiang in 1758 and 59, and then suppression of a rebellion in Taiwan in 1787 and 88, and then there was a costly border war with Burma from 1766 to 1770, and there were also two campaigns to expel the Gurkhas from southern Tibet and back to Nepal, where they came from. Last, there was another border war with Annam from 1788 to 1789, and that war was the last one China would fight with their tough little Vietnamese neighbors to the south until 1979. Some of these wars were more critical than others, but all told, these ten victorious campaigns was another series of landmark events in the long reign of the Qianlong Emperor. Now, from 1775 to 1799, the last quarter century of Qianlong's life, there was a shady character named He Shen, a Manchu who was to become a sort of Rasputin-like confidant of the emperor and called all the shots for over two decades and was the source of most of the terrible corruption and government waste that characterized the final years of the Qianlong era. Well, there's a long story about He Shen, about how as a 25-year-old nobody, basically he caught the attention of the emperor. Some say it was homosexual love because this He Shen was allegedly quite an attractive young man. Some say he reminded the emperor of his favorite concubine who had committed suicide due to some innocent prank committed by the emperor. Whatever the case may be, He Shen became inseparable from the emperor, and let's just say that He Shen has gone down as one of the most corrupt officials in all of Chinese history, so you can imagine what kind of fun he had controlling the Qianlong emperor in his increasingly frailer years. After a while, the emperor just ran out of steam and just left matters completely in the hands of He Shen. But the emperor did not die and kept on going. Even his own son, who took over as the Jiaqing emperor, had admitted that his father lived too long. Seven years before the death of this emperor in 1792, what is called the greatest novel in Chinese history was unleashed on the public. It was known by two different names, Dream of the Red Chamber and The Story of the Stone, Hong Lo Meng and Shi Tou Ji. The author was Cao Xueqin. It was written sometime during the middle of Qianlong's reign, so we could say basically about the time when everything was just about peaking. In the 120 chapters of this novel, with its hundreds of rich characters and detailed look at Qing Dynasty Chinese society, one meets the Jia family and the three main characters in a love triangle, Jia Baoyu, Lin Daiyu, and Xue Baochai. Through the mega-rich and privileged Jia family, one gets a close-up look at the day-to-day life in elite society. The dream of the Red Chamber is filled with sex and non-stop sexual innuendo. But aside from all that, it's both a masterpiece of world literature, and if you could keep all the characters straight, a very fantastic read. Cao Xueqin died before he could finish the novel in 1763, but others picked up the mantle for him and had it finished off, and it was one of the biggest things to happen in 1792. The 1790s was not a good decade for the Qing. The scale of the graft and corruption going on throughout China was unprecedented. The whole country was plundered by anyone who had a dog in any race. 
no matter what, for both military and civil affairs. Too many people along the chain of command were on the take, and by the 1790s, it all caught up to the Qing Empire. Now, they started the decade off nicely by booting the Gurkhas out of Tibet and securing political control over affairs there, but the cost was exhausting to the treasury. And as I said, who knows, for every tale of silver spent, how many went into the pockets of whoever. But the government began to falter. The lean, mean fighting machine that the Yongzheng Emperor left behind under his son, the Qianlong Emperor, had grown slow, inefficient, and flabby in its old age. By this time, the Qianlong Emperor was into his 80s and not at the top of his game anymore. He was totally under the control of He Shen. In fact, when Lord George McCartney came calling in 1793, he mentions He Shen being there and handed down to posterity his thoughts about the evil and corrupt uh, handler of the frail Qianlong Emperor. By 1792, when Lord McCartney, well, he was Earl McCartney back then, left London on his mission to China, British tea culture was in full swing and Builder's tea was all the rage. If only the East India Company could get more supply, the potential in sales seemed endless. By the 1790s, Westerners were still knocking on China's door like a pushy salesman who won't go away. These Westerners, with their Western ways that even today cause many Chinese to feel a little queasy and uneasy, they were aggressively knocking on the door and trying to obtain the Holy Grail. No, not the cup of our Lord used at the Last Supper, but new treaty ports to trade at, where they could buy as much tea as possible. Tea, tea, tea. Now that the common Brits could also enjoy their cuppa, like the Swells and Knightsbridge, there never seemed to be enough tea in China to feed this exploding market. Tea was sort of like an iPad back in the 18th century. It was a hot item and sold out as soon as it hit the market. All China trade had to go through one port, Canton, the big bottleneck. These early Westerners, least of all the East India Company, weren't going to take no for an answer. They had to get more ports open. So, if not for this, if not for these foreigners, first out of the starting gate and first to enjoy the earliest benefits of the Industrial Revolution, who knows in what direction Qing Dynasty China might have gone or how much longer they might have lasted. But when all this starts to happen in the mid-18th century, the Qianlong Emperor goofs big time, and China later pays for this miscalculation. This was the miscalculation of the century, you might say. When the Western powers showed up in Japan later on in 1853, the Japanese observed the situation and said, well, we got to be like them or else they're going to walk all over us. But... When the Qianlong Emperor was faced with the same situation half a century earlier, he said, what do we got to worry about these guys for? His legendary reply to George III went sort of like this. First, he tells the king, "Uh, sorry, but the UK doesn't really have anything we need or want. Then, in response to the 600 or so carefully packed crates with the greatest manufacturers Britain was capable of producing, the Qianlong Emperor... He replied, quote, We have never valued ingenious articles, nor do we have the slightest need of your country's manufactures. Therefore, O King, as regards to your request to send someone to remain at the capital, 
While it is not in harmony with the regulations of the Celestial Empire, we also feel very much that it is of no advantage to your country. And with that, he sent Lord McCartney packing. The British envoy didn't get any of the diplomatic rights he expected, nor did he get any additional treaty ports open. The lousy Canton system that the East India Company hated was to remain the only game in town. And last but not least, as far as fixing tariffs to a reasonable number, forget about it. That didn't happen either. You want to do business with China? It has to be their way or stay out. Lord McCartney had time to think about this as he made his way back to Canton. He passed through the belly of China, and what he saw he famously noted in his journals. He said, quote, The Empire of China is an old, crazy, first-rate man-of-war, which a fortunate succession of able and vigilant officers has contrived to keep afloat for these 150 years past, and to overawe their neighbors merely by her bulk and appearance. But with lesser men at the helm, China would slowly drift until dashed to pieces on the shore. In other words, Lord McCartney saw the reality of China was far from what people saw on the outside. He noted this and duly reported his findings. Fifty years later, you had the Treaty of Nanjing. Ouch! So the Qianlong Emperor, he had to take the rap for the wastefulness and ostentation that came to define his era, and for the backwardness China suddenly saw in itself. 